Good morning. It is a delight to be with you this morning. I love listening to you sing. It is one of the wonderful privileges of gathering together on the Lord's Day as the people of God. If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn to Ecclesiastes. Our time together this morning will be greatly helped and much more fruitful and enjoyable if you keep a Bible open in the book of Ecclesiastes throughout the entirety of the sermon. If you don't have a Bible with you, you should be able to find a Bible underneath the seat in front of you or near you. Ecclesiastes begins on page 553 or somewhere thereof. Uh, some of the pagination is a little different depending on which one you grab. If you're not very familiar with the Bible, uh, it's in the Old Testament. So if you kind of just open up to the middle, you should be able to find somewhere uh, right around Ecclesiastes. Or you could just look at the front of the Bible, Table of Contents. I'm going to begin reading in just a moment in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 1. I'm going to ask you to follow along with me as, we, as I do. The preacher writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he speaks to us with the same authority as of Jesus Christ himself. We're here speaking to us today. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things nor will there be any remembrance of latter things. Yet to be among those who come after. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It is truth. And we thank you that we have the privilege to be able to turn our attention to it now. We do ask that you would help us. We know that the enemy would seek to snatch the good word that we are studying this morning. We pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see the truth of God as it has been revealed in the word of God. Lord, we thank you for the songs that we have sung, the prayers that we have prayed, the scriptures that we have read. And we ask, Father, even through them, that you would use them to focus our minds on the scripture that we might see Jesus Christ more clearly. Father, we thank you that we can do all of this with relative freedom. Lord, we are so grateful for that privilege. May we never take it for granted that we can come together here and not fear persecution. We ask all of this in the name of our God who has revealed himself to us as Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen. In an interview with Steve Croft in 2005, Tom Brady asked, Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me, I think it's got to be more than this. I mean, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. I mean, I've done it. I'm 27. And what else is there for me? He was only 27 then, now he's 43, and since that interview, he's won four more Super Bowl rings, set numerous NFL records, earned nearly $264 million, married a supermodel who was the highest paid model in the world from 2002 to 2017, had three children, started his own diet brand, traveled the world, and played golf with presidents, among other things. Many of us... Perhaps all of us this morning would say, 
He's done it all. Tom Brady has everything. Because to those of us who do not, quote, have it all, accomplishment, pleasure, power, wealth, recognition, prestige, beckon so promisingly. They're deceptive. Because when you have little, or at least less than the other guy that you're comparing yourself to, you can still believe the lie that more will actually make you happy. And that is exactly what the world tells you. That if you have more, you will be happy. More money, more education, more sex, more power, more friends, more knowledge, more of whatever it is that you want. If you have more, you will finally be happy. But poor little rich man Tom Brady had it all at 27, and the bubble burst. The illusion shattered, and he learned from experience what every hedonist knows, that all of our attempts to make meaning that all of the square pegs we shove into the round hole of the existential vacuum, that all of the marbles that we throw into the Grand Canyon of meaninglessness in a necessary but doomed attempt to fill it up do not make you happy. In fact, they inevitably become boring sooner or later. In 2005, at the age of 27, Tom Brady learned what Pascal himself knew, and the book of Ecclesiastes teaches. Anyone who does not see the vanity of life must be very vain indeed. Ecclesiastes is one of five wisdom books in the Old Testament. If you wanted to summarize them, you could do so like this. Job, life as suffering. Psalms, life as worship. Proverbs, life as it should be. Ecclesiastes, life as vanity. Song of Solomon, life as love. These five books are intended to teach us how to live, how to flourish as people, how to thrive in our lives, how to live and have the good life. But if any of you have ever read the book of Ecclesiastes, you have to be asking yourselves, how could a book like Ecclesiastes, a book about meaninglessness, be meaningful and teach us how to live? And not only how to live, but how to flourish and thrive in this world. Whereas themes of some of those books may be considered perplexing like Job or supported in the New Testament like Psalms, Ecclesiastes seems to not belong in the list at all. And if we're honest, for many of us, it seems not to really belong in the Bible. What other book of the Bible confronts the reader with such pessimism and despair? What other book of the Bible challenges the idea of the afterlife? What other book of the Bible shows the hollowness of what looks like the fullest life? As one preacher said, some parts can feel cynical, even nihilistic, more at home in a play by Camus or an essay by Nietzsche than on the pages of Scripture. And yet Ecclesiastes has been called by some the greatest book ever written by God-haunted agnostics like Herman Melville who wrote in Moby Dick, the truest of all books is Ecclesiastes, or Thomas Wolfe in his novel, You Can't Go Home Again, said, Of all that I have seen or learned, that book seems to me the noblest, the wisest, and the most powerful expression of man's life upon this earth, and also the highest flower of poetry, eloquence, and truth. I'm not given to dogmatic judgments in a matter of literary creation, but if I had one to make... I could only say that Ecclesiastes is the greatest single piece of writing 
I have ever known. And the wisdom expressed in it, the most lasting and profound. This, Peter Kreft observes, makes Ecclesiastes the one book of the Bible that modern man needs to read more than any other book of the Bible for at least seven reasons. First, it is an existential book. It is a book about human existence, and it asks the great question of the modern man. Does my existence here on planet Earth have any meaning at all? Does waking up and going to bed every morning of my life matter? Is there any significance to my days on Earth? Why am I here? Second, it shows modernity's deepest fear, which is not so much the fear of death, that's ancient man's deepest fear, or the fear of sin or guilt or hell, that's the medieval man's deepest fear, but the fear of meaninglessness. That's what everybody in this room fears, that your life doesn't matter and it will go unnoticed by everyone, that no one will remember you when you're gone. And they will never care that you ever lived. Third, it shares the best future of the modern mind as well as the worst. That is, although it is a deeply despairing book, it is a deeply honest book. And despair can be hopeful if it's honest. Fourth, its answer to the greatest good is the modern answer. No answer. Kreft says it like this, one of the, 21, of the 21 great civilizations that have existed on our planet, according to Toneby's reckoning, ours, the modern West, is the first that does not have or teach its citizens any answer to the question why they exist. A euphemistic way of saying this is that our society is pluralistic and leaves us to freely choose or create our own ultimate values. A more candid way of saying the same thing is that our society has nothing but its own ignorance to give us on this, the most important of all questions. Our society gives us no answer. You go and create meaning. You choose whatever destiny you would like. And as long as you're happy with that destiny, you're fine. And the next guy can be happy with whatever he wants to make up for his meaning. Fifth, it shows that the practical result of asking no ultimate questions is hedonism. Because when you do not know why you do anything else, or why you exist, or your purpose of living on planet Earth, you can still seize the day. But the book of Ecclesiastes tells us that that too is vanity, because it ends only in death and you can't take any of your toys with you. Sixth, it's anthropocentric. That is man-centered rather than theocentric, rather than God-centered. As if God is an ingredient in my life rather than I an ingredient in His. Seventh, its author is an empiricist. And by that I mean he's just looking out at the world, reporting to us news from Earth's universal newspaper. He's looking at the way things are and saying... Well, if things are this way, all is vanity. If this is really how we spend our life on planet Earth, sunrise, sunset, one morning, next morning, live, die, rich, poor, everybody meets the same existence, who cares? Why live life at all? Don't give me Nietzsche. Give me Bertrand Russell and put an end to it all. So the important thing for us to ask is, who is this author that is telling us all that? And to answer that question, we must look at the book itself. Look in verse 1, the words of the preacher. Who the preacher is really does not even matter because Ecclesiastes is not an autobiography, but a sermon delivered by Kohelet, the preacher or teacher. Probably most of your Bibles beside preacher or teacher or whatever it is that's there, has a footnote that drops you to the bottom and it gives you that Hebrew term. A Kohelet is the Hebrew that we translate preacher, and it was somebody who participated in or played a role in an assembly. The Greek rendering of Kohelet 
is Ecclesiastes, from which we derive our English title of the book. And Ecclesiastes was a person who sat or spoke in an ecclesia, an assembly of local citizens gathered together. Verse 1 helps us see that what the preacher did, speak words, not who the preacher was, is what matters. Which is why, if you read the book of Ecclesiastes closely, you'll see that the preacher is never named. It does not matter who he is. His name is not important. Yet a minority of people still claim that he was literally King Solomon because verse 1 goes on to say, the preacher is the son of David, king in Jerusalem. While the majority claim that the style and the vocabulary of the book as a whole indicates another author, that it could not have been Solomon, it's a post-exilic book. And the Hebrew writer could have just used this word son for any direct male descendant of Solomon to refer to him generations later. And it was a common literary device for ancient Jewish authors to honor Solomon as a way of declaring their indebtedness to him as the ideal wise man. Because what the preacher said, not who the preacher was, or even when the preacher lived, is what the author wants us to understand. It's one of the great ironies of biblical studies for so many of us. The questions that the text is not answering are the very ones that we think are most important for us to try to understand it. But if you read Ecclesiastes closely, it does not give you an answer to that question because it does not care to answer that question for you. What the preacher did is speak. And what did he speak? What did he say? Well, before we turn our attention to our text this morning, what I'd like you to do is flip over to chapter 2 with me. And we're going to look in chapter 2, verse 1, where the preacher writes, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. We're going to come back to these verses and these examples in more detail in the weeks and months ahead, but I want to point you to them now because chapter 2 lays out so nicely what the preacher says to us. And after all of it, after he gave himself to all of these things, to pleasure in verse 2, and to wine and drink in verse 3, and to building and erecting great monuments for himself in verse 4, and to materialism, that is, acquiring possessions for himself, in verse 5, and to money and earning money and more money and having more money than the next guy, in verse 8, and to entertainment to which there was no end so that he actually might enjoy his few days under the sun, in verse 8, and to elicit no strings attached attached sex ad nauseum, in verse 8, and to a reputation that was greater than anybody on earth, in Jerusalem before him in verse 9, he tells us in verse 10, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep them from me. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Now, if we stopped here, if we were honest, most of us would say, that's a pretty good deal for me. If I finally got all of the things I want, all of the things that I would be ashamed probably to share with other people in here, if I could just finally have it as mine and I wouldn't get, quote, in trouble for it, 
I'd say that's not that bad of a deal after all. Life's hard. Why not enjoy it? No restraint. Unrestricted pleasure. At your fingertips and your disposal, all that you've ever wanted forever. Before he says this in verse 11 of chapter 2. Then I considered all that my hands had done and all the toil I expended in doing it. Behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. What does the preacher say to us? What did the preacher say? After the fullest life ever lived, more money, more pleasure, more power, more prestige, more opportunity, more men, more women, more slaves, more servants, more education, more knowledge, more wisdom, the best of all kingdoms, no war because everybody was afraid of him. He tells us that he got bored, that nothing mattered because nothing ultimately satisfied the aches and the longings of his heart. Brothers and sisters, for those of us who have indulged in sin in our lives and are willing to admit it this morning, you know that to be true from your own experience. You grab and you grab and you grab and you indulge and you indulge and you indulge and you are bankrupt at the end of all of it. It never makes you happy. The pleasure ends, the party stops, the friends leave, the money's spent, and you have nothing to show for it but a hollowness at the end of it. Everything you could have ever wanted, if I just had that now, only to find out it never really mattered after all. That argument is the argument of the whole book. In fact, you could read that argument this afternoon. Ecclesiastes is not a hard book to read. You could go home and read it this afternoon. I would encourage you to read it many times while we're studying it. In fact, I realized last night that I bought the same book twice on Ecclesiastes. If you're willing to read it and actually study this and do the hard work of giving yourself to the book of Ecclesiastes, come find me afterwards. I'm willing to give this extra copy of Recovering Eden, the Gospel According to Ecclesiastes by Zach Aswine to you. The only promise you have to make is that you will actually study Ecclesiastes this year and you will read this book while you're doing it. If you can't keep that promise, leave it for somebody else. I'll keep it with me in the courtyard. That argument that is developed across the whole book is actually summarized in just three verses. He's a really good preacher. Look in chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Let's read them again now. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? We've already seen the title of the book and the author in verse 1. Now also notice the motive or the motto of the book in verse 2. If you're a person who likes to write in your Bible, I just want you to circle every time you see the word vanity. And as you're maybe going home and reading Ecclesiastes, you could just do that. That's an exercise. Circle every time you see the word vanity throughout the book. Verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. The preacher's point or conclusion, his motto, is so blatant that only the sleeping person can actually miss it. It's mentioned five times in the second verse and 34 times in the book as a whole. But what does vanity mean? Now, when we read this and think, well, he's speaking of somebody who's really focused on themselves, we're actually reading it wrong. He's not speaking of vanity in the mirror. He's not speaking of a narcissism that has overcome somebody. The Hebrew word for Vanity that he's speaking of here means in vain or useless or profitlessness or meaninglessness. The Hebrew word literally means chasing after wind. 
a grasping after a shadow, searching for something that isn't real, longing for something that doesn't exist. It is a wild goose chase with no wild goose. Friends, what we need more than anything else in this world is to have a reason to live and a reason to die. But the preacher tells us after his observation, after indulging in all of life and observing the way that the world is, that no such reason exists under the sun. There is no reason to live, and there is nothing worth dying for. There is absolutely nothing that matters under the sun. But like any good preacher, he's so concerned that we might miss that point. He not only begins his sermon with the motto, he actually concludes his sermon with the motto. Turn to chapter 12 with me in your Bible. Chapter 12, verse 8, one of the last sections. And he says this. And if you like to write in your Bible, beside verse 8, you should just write chapter 1, verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. I've told you my main point, vanity. I tell you everything I see, nothing matters. I remind you of my main point, vanity. The book starts low, and it actually gets worse as the preacher tells us everything is meaningless. I mean, if you're not discouraged by the end of verse 2, you are in absolute despair by the end of the book. Why am I even reading this? This too is vanity. And we, as we continue throughout our study, will learn some things about words. All in verse 2 literally means all. Everything means everything. Wealth doesn't matter. Wisdom doesn't matter. Power doesn't matter. Pleasure doesn't matter. Prestige doesn't matter. Fame doesn't matter. All the things that we long for and we look for to find meaning beyond ourselves for ourselves because we so desperately want our lives to matter. All of us want to leave an indelible mark on the world. I would dare say that many of us, when we graduated from high school, thought, I'm going to change the world. I'm going to be different. I'm going to prove all those people wrong. My life's going to count. I'm going to be somebody, and I'm going to show all those people that I am somebody. I want everyone to know that mine was not a life that was wasted, that my life has significance. They're going to remember me. They will never forget how I lived all my days. We want to be significant even when we're not greatly remembered or memorialized because we want to know that there was a purpose for being here all of our days on earth. That is a question I assume that all of you are trying to answer. Ecclesiastes tells us that a truth that we fear more than any other. That all the things that you've worked for, and everything that you've strived after, and everything that you've yearned for and pined for more than anything on planet earth, everything that you've hoped would actually give you meaning, are shadows that are passing away. That they're actually meaningless now. Vanity, and friends, for the modern ear, that is a death that is worse than death itself. A death that we are so afraid of that we fill our personal world with thousands of little things to keep our attention diverted away from that ultimate question so that we don't have time to think about how meaningless everything is. You just think of how we scurry about trying to distract ourselves from the pain. The reason that some of you stay so utterly busy in your life, you move from one thing to the next thing to the next thing to the next thing, and you fill up your task list, and you long to check it all off, is because you are trying to distract yourself from that bottomless pit in your heart that says, none of it matters at all, and nobody cares that you're alive. I just do the next thing. It'll all matter. And Ecclesiastes hits you smack in the face with the truth and says, maybe it doesn't matter at all. 
What are you striving for? Brothers and sisters, that's not even a rhetorical question. I'm asking you, what do you want? What are you striving for? We try to distract ourselves. We numb what we're thinking about so that we don't have to think at all. Or we work very hard to remain indifferent. Because if we don't care, it can't matter, right? Now, all of the people in the room that would think of themselves as indifferent, the reality is, is if you're honest with everybody else here this morning, you really care. You're just trying to convince yourself that you don't, and you want to convince everybody else that you don't as well. But we all know the truth, and so does Ecclesiastes. You care. You care by trying to act like you don't care because you long for people to care about you. You see, everybody in this room came in here with something in common today. You care about what other people think about you. And you long for your life to matter. Whether it's 10 years or 20 years or 40 years or 80 years, you long to know that at the end, it was worth it. And he gets to the end of it all, and he has it all. And he says, no, it actually wasn't worth it after all. Preacher's motto actually forces a question upon us in verse 3. It's his argument. Look in verse 3. He says, What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? And at this moment, he sounds a lot like Jesus. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Vanity means meaninglessness, and toil means not just hard work, but any work. Everything that we do, everything that we put our mind to, everything that we put our hand to, all of our human pursuits, all of our efforts, everything that we do to derive meaning from life, verse 3 under the sun, which is another catchphrase throughout the book. You'll find it 20 or more times throughout Ecclesiastes, depending on the translation that you read. The relevance of this book is seen in the fact that from Ecclesiastes to Boethius's Consolation of Philosophy to 21st century America's uh, pursuits under the sun, we see that it is the same for us and for our families and for our neighbors, as it was for the preacher and his family and his neighbors. That we are all pursuing things like wisdom, like pleasure, like wealth connected to power. Because often when you have wealth, you have power. Like philanthropy, we do things to make ourselves feel better about ourselves because we think that that will make us feel that we have a purpose. Perhaps that's part of the reason that you're here today. You think, if I come to church, I'll feel better about myself. And if I read my Bible, God will love me. And if I do good things, it'll all tip in my favor in the end. To which we would like to say, you're very wrong, and none of that will ever satisfy. And God will not give you any favor because of all of the religious things that you've tried to amass for yourself. Because we long to find meaning in religion. We want to know that there's something out there. We give our hearts, we give our minds, we give our time, we give our lives to these things. And over and over again, they show themselves to be vain. They show themselves to not satisfy. Just a quick question. How many of you in this room at some point have said, you know, I really want that, and if I have that, I'll be happy? Don't answer because it's all of you. And then when you finally got that thing, whatever it was, relationship, a child, a job, a career, a degree, an opportunity, weren't satisfied. You don't have to answer because that's all of you. That's what Ecclesiastes does. It confronts us with that reality. C.S. Lewis, in one of his famous essays in God on the Docks, talks about first and second things. And he says the only way to actually have first things, or second things, is to pursue first things first and then you get second things. 
But we so often live our lives in pursuit of second things, and as a result of that, we not only miss out on second things, we lose all of the first things. That's what Ecclesiastes is trying to do. It's saying our whole lives are lived in pursuit of second things, things that don't ultimately satisfy. And by striving after second things, We will not only miss all of the second things, but we will never get any of the first things in life. Which is why you can spend a life working and laboring and teaching and writing and learning and doing all of these things. And at the end of it, ask yourself, what do I have to show for all of it? And the answer would be nothing. The preacher picks at least two pictures to illustrate his point in verses 4 through 11. Read them with me again. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and it goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full to the place where the streams flow. There they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot under it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new. It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of latter things yet to be among those who come after us. One of the things he highlights here is monotony. And our pursuits are so monotonous. We wake up, we go to sleep, we go to work, we come home. We go back to work, we go back home, we eat, we go to the next meal over and over again. And we get tired of the monotony, just the grind, the relentless grind of it all. The monotony becomes dull, it becomes boring. We finally have it and it never satisfies. So we long for other things that themselves prove to be monotonous. We have more opportunity for recreation in 21st century than any century before us. Work hours have gone down, recreation has gone up, money has been given to more and more people, and still we find ourselves not satisfied with the monotony of it all. It's boring. Just another vacation, just another beach, just another movie, just another meal. Nothing is new, nothing satisfies, and we get so tired of it all. Some people get so tired of it, they want to put an end to it all. Friends, if you've ever been there, especially if you're there right now, we would love to talk to you. Do not put an end to it all. Though there is a lot of despair in this book, there is hope, and we'll come to that. But we would love to tell you about a hope from, come, that comes from a creator, that your life does matter, even though it feels that it doesn't. Ecclesiastes is trying to observe the world, and he tells us that the monotony just drones on and on it's like the Peanuts cartoon and the teacher. Want, 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 On and on and on, over and over again, nobody's listening and nobody cares. But he also highlights something for us, that all of that monotony is exhausting. Did you notice what he said in verse 8? It's full of weariness. It just wears us out. And then he tells us something in verses 9 through 11. He tells us about death, that because of death, nothing is new. It only seems new because of death. It seems new because we have forgotten about it. So we are actually able to say, look, I have done a new thing. I am the original person to do this. And though technology advances in so many ways and we find ourselves doing some things that might be novel in and of themselves, it's not really new, is it? We've just found different ways to care for people, but people have always been caring for people. That's not new. We just have more neat gadgets to do it with. 
People have always been writing books. We just might find more creative ways to publish them and get them out so that you can read them on your phone. We feel that it's new because we have forgotten. Because of death, we not only have forgotten, but we have right in front of us this robber that's going to take everything away. We work and we work. We push through the monotony. We strive and we strive. We build and we build. Our barns are here, and now they're full. And then death comes, and it's all gone. And everything that you built for yourself, my kingdom, looking out on it like Nebuchadnezzar, look what I have done, is snatched away from you. And you have nothing to show for it. Friends, that's even true in family. The closest among us who are very close to our family, perhaps you know your grandfather's name, and perhaps you know your great-grandfather's name. But how many of us know our great-great-grandfather's name, his name, where he lived, what he did for work, who he was married to, the children that he had, where he was born? Maybe one of us, perhaps none of us, because we have forgotten it all. Death just takes it all away, and everything that we thought would immortalize us this side of eternity is gone. It's a vapor. It's a mist, how James speak of it. Life in the midst. Death robs us of all, quote, satisfaction. Even our posterity forgets us. After his stunning remarks, Steve Croft looked at Tom Brady and said, What's the answer? To which, if you're familiar with the interview, Brady said, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. Ecclesiastes is the question to which Christ alone is the answer. Because it dares to look at life in the face honestly and say, perhaps there really is no meaning to all of this after all. And when we are confronted with that and give that answer, we have to finally look somewhere or, as the Bible will tell us, to someone to give us meaning. You see, friends, we go about it all wrong. Ecclesiastes tells us we're trying to create meaning for ourselves. But you actually don't create meaning for yourself. You receive meaning from another. The reason that your life matters is because you have received it from God. The reason that your life can count is because it is wrapped up in Christ. When eternity enters time and God becomes man and shares the life of a man so that we all can share the life of God, we no longer have to strive to create meaning for ourselves, to be remembered and to go down in the annals of church history or world history as one of the greatest of all time, whom all people will remember, whether that's in the worst ways or the best ways. We can receive our meaning from another and know that it matters for all of eternity as we are pointed to the one that Paul says, not only is wisdom, but in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. What are our lives here for? Ecclesiastes actually does give us an answer. I want you to turn to the end of Ecclesiastes with me, please. Ecclesiastes chapter 12. He says in verse 9, Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and of much study is a weariness to the flesh. The end of the matter all has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments. 
for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. He does two things for us here. First, he tells us that we are to fear God. Now, how do we fear God? Well, to actually fear God, we have to believe what God has said about us. And to believe what God has said about us, we actually have to know what God has said about us. And this is what the book of Romans tells us that God has said about us. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one has done good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their path are ruin and misery. The way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. The wages of sin is death. To fear God, we actually have to believe what God has said about us. And God has said that we are sinful. And that all that we have ever earned from a life of sin is death. Not only physical death, but eternal death. A meaningless life will result in a meaningless death apart from Christ. But then Romans tells us something about God. That God, being rich in mercy, while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. And he tells us a very simple way to believe in this God and to fear him. If you confess confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You don't create meaning, you receive meaning as it's bound up in salvation in Christ. Brothers and sisters, this is the answer to Ecclesiastes. When we're confronted with meaninglessness, we turn to this one whose life alone was meaningful, whose life alone had purpose, and he invites us to participate in that life by faith. All we have to do is believe what he has said about us, repent of those sins, and trust in him so that we might have everlasting life and everlasting purpose and everlasting joy and everlasting mission that what we do this side of eternity can matter, that we can proclaim the eternal life words, that we can call other people to eternal life, that these souls that will die will live forever in the new heavens, in the new earth, that we can labor to build something that will outlive our days on planet earth as we strive together to build a church that proclaims a gospel about this king who so loves his people. Do you want meaning? Do you want purpose? Come to Christ and trust in Christ. He alone can satisfy those longings in your heart. You're trying to create meaning. and You'll never find it. But you can receive meaning from him this morning. If you would just look to him and live. This is how we fear God. We believe what he has said. That it really doesn't matter. And all that does matter is bound up in relationship with this one Jesus. Will you place your faith in him today? Brothers and sisters, if you have questions about that, we would love to talk to you about the gospel. I'm going to be standing in the courtyard after the service. Our other elders, they would love to open the Bible with you and tell you how you can trust in Jesus Christ. We invite you to come to believe in him and have everlasting life and everlasting joy. But notice what else he does in chapter 12. He doesn't only tell us to fear God. He tells us to appropriately, in case we don't fear God, to fear judgment. In verse 14, for God, this God that we should fear, will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or or evil. A life of wisdom is bound up with not only believing what God has said about us, but believing that a judgment is coming. That life is not only meaningless apart from Him, but a meaningless life apart from Him will be judged. Brothers and sisters, 
you stand before the Creator, whether you know it or not. And He will bring everything into judgment. He will lay it all bare before you. He will bring every secret thing into judgment. Everything that we think has gone on notice, everything that we have prayed in the dark recesses of our house would go unnoticed. He will bring it to light, and He will lay it bare. And all will be made known. And if you do not fear Him, all you will face in that moment is His judgment and His wrath. He will pour out on you everlasting wrath for a life that was eternally meaningless. And you will never have purpose. You will perish forever. The Bible confronts us with awful reality for those apart from Christ, for those who don't fear God. Do you fear God? Keep His commandments. This is the whole duty of man. And how do you keep His commandments? Repent and believe the good news of the gospel. Ecclesiastes is actually a very hopeful book because it tells us that there's an answer to these deep longings in our heart. That we actually don't have to live like Tom Brady, wondering, what else is out there? I mean, I have it all. Because we can know what is actually out there. What is out there before us is everlasting life, everlasting joy, everlasting freedom, everlasting hope, resurrection, purpose with God in Christ forever. Let's pray. God, we pray that you would help us by teaching us a heart of wisdom as we are confronted with the reality of life apart from Christ. And Lord, we thank you that when we are finally honest with reality apart from Christ, you meet us with mercy. You meet us with grace. You offer us hope of resurrection, and you tell us that it can matter forever. God, I pray for those today who have sought to fill their lives with things that will perish. They will fade, fade each earthly joy. Jesus alone is mine. And Father, I pray for those who today know nothing of the everlasting hope of which we've sung. May today be the day that you open their ears to the truth of the gospel and command their hearts to obey your word and cause them to be born again. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.